Hi, I'm Hafiz Jato, and you're listening to the Youth Employment Services Job Pod. Joining me today is Alex, and we are going to do an interview with David Camfield, an associate professor at the University of Manitoba's Labor Studies Department. To start off with, we ask every guest on our podcast what their job is, if they can sort of explain that a little bit. So David, tell us a little bit about what you do. So my title is Associate Professor in the Labor Studies Program and the Sociology Department at the University of Manitoba. So I do teaching, research, and service work. So about 40% of my duties are teaching university-level courses in those areas. 40% of my work involves research, and another 20% involves service, which ranges from doing things like this, talking to people in the community, to doing different kinds of administrative service within the university. So... Over the course of a year, that's roughly how my duties are assigned. Thank you for that. Can you maybe elaborate on what labor studies is and how it might vary from the kind of career development study stuff we deal with a bit more? So labor studies is a program in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Manitoba, and it's interdisciplinary, which means it draws on approaches that you would find in a variety of different areas, so history, sociology, and others. And it's all focused on work and society. That's really the heart. It's about understanding work and society, work in the context of the society that it's part of. And so students in the program take a range of courses. There are some that everybody needs to take that give people some foundations, and then they can choose to take courses in a a number of other areas. So everyone will take courses that look at some of the basics of how work is organized and how it came to be organized the way that it is in our society, and to learn about workers' rights and unions the most important organizations related to workers' rights in our society, but also, you know, the relationships between employers, workers, and the state that regulates those relationships, how work is shaped by the capitalist society that it's part of. Those are some of the core areas, but there's other courses people can take on history, on health and safety, on pensions and benefits, um, lots of other kinds of topics. What was your first job and how does it relate to your current job where there are transferable skills? My first job that I was paid for, I guess, was working in a bookstore. That was when I was in high school, working in a a secondhand bookstore when it was part-time. And I don't think that it really connects in any way with the job that I have now, but it was a long time ago. And I, I could think back, I did learn certain things from it about like some of the kind of irrationalities we experience in the workplace. This was a situation at a very small bookstore where the employer hired me and then I was left to run the shop by myself most of the time. But I was expected when there were no customers to, uh, to dust under the books and to dust the books which didn't seem to me the most meaningful thing. And I used a certain amount of the time that I had when there were no customers around to simply read. So a lot of our clients are getting their first jobs and are maybe new to thinking of themselves as workers as being part of their identity. And I think that can be a strange thing to come to terms with. From childhood up to high school, there's an emphasis in people being their occupation and a lot of focus on having a clear dream job and doing what you love. But yet a lot of entry-level jobs are not that. So I'm wondering from a labor studies perspective, how do you think it's helpful for young workers to think about work relative to their identities or sense of meaning in society? Okay, that's a really interesting question. I think to start with, I think it's really important for people to recognize that they are not their jobs, right? That they are people who, and we shouldn't ever allow our jobs to simply define who we are. Although, of course, it's very common in our society to do that because, you know, you meet somebody, you ask them, what do they do? 
And you're always asking them what they're doing for pay, right? That may not be the most meaningful thing that they do in their lives. But it's true. I think you, you put your finger on something that there's a mismatch between you know, being told to do what you love and, and so on, on the one hand, but then finding yourself in, a, in an entry-level job, you know, serving coffee or helping burgers or something like that. So I think that people, yeah, should just recognize that they as human beings are, are you know, more than what they do for pay. And then we shouldn't judge people as human beings on the basis of what they, they do for pay. And people should be, I think, pretty pragmatic about it, looking at your job in terms of, you know, the money that you'd be making that you would need, what might it do to help you get another job, move on from there, thinking about how you're treated on the job, some of those kinds of things, because there is definitely a disconnect between being told to think big and dream and the reality of a lot of the jobs that people start off with and that some people end up being stuck in. Later on in people's careers, this maybe also has an impact on work-life balance and someone's ability to also have an identity outside of their job and stuff. How do you see sort of like labor studies relating to that later career stage as people are, again, defining themselves by career growth or really prioritizing that? How can you look at like burnout and imbalance and stuff like that? Studying labor studies, the approach that we take in labor studies helps people to recognize that the world of work that they're in is shaped by forces beyond our control, right? So that, of course, our own individual efforts can make a difference. But so often, I think people blame themselves for things when they don't go well in their job, or they believe they can change the, the nature of the workplace through personal effort. I think that is often a recipe for people either developing really negative feelings about themselves because the situations they find themselves in, or as you say, becoming really worn down by trying to do the right thing in a workplace or an organization that's structured in ways that get in the way of that, that create obstacles to that. And that can really be hard if people work for years and pour every ounce of energy that they've got into the workplace at, at a real cost to themselves. So having an understanding of the terrain that we're on, you know, having an understanding of the way that the workplaces are, are structured and the forces that shape what we experience in the workplace, I think this can help people to make smarter decisions for themselves. I think it can help us to recognize that, you know, maybe the manager that's doing things you disagree with is doing this because of the forces that are acting on them and not because of what they are as a person, for example. And you can then kind of understand that. Why is somebody one way outside of work and then does other things in the workplace that seem to make no sense? Or why do the best arguments that you make about trying to change the way something is done just fall on deaf ears? Is it that you're not making them in a compelling enough way? Or is it because there are other priorities that are governing the way that decisions are being made? So I think that, yeah, just having an understanding of the institutions that we're working in can help us to navigate and make wiser decisions that are better for ourselves as human beings in terms of what we choose to do and how we relate to our coworkers, some of the choices that we make. Is that getting at the, some of the things that you wanted to talk about there? Awesome. Thank you. So David, how might a labor studies perspective help someone understand and respond to developing labor organizing things like when U of M went on strike? Well, I think labor studies as an approach helps us to understand that in the world of work, I mean, most people sell their ability to work in exchange for wages, whether that's paid on an hourly basis or an annual basis. And most of those people have little or no control over the work that we do. And those who are in that position have interests that are different from those of people that employ us, whether they be private sector employers or public sector employers. Recognizing that people are not all in the same boat. We may be all working in the same organizations, but there's a difference between the, you know, what's good for the majority of people who 
work for wages and what's in the interest of the people who own and control those organizations. And that's a, that's a structural thing. There are, these things are actually built that way. And so that will lead to certain kinds of frictions. And in some situations, if people are unionized and are attempting to negotiate to either maintain their past gains or to make improvements in their pay or in their working conditions, their rights, you know, this can flare up into overt conflict, such as a strike or a lockout. And so certainly we saw this happening at the University of Manitoba in November and December of 2021. And we can see, you know, I don't want to exaggerate it, but there's a kind of an uptick in workers feeling that they need to band together and act collectively by forming unions in order to make change in, in the workplace, sometimes in response to what they've endured through the pandemic so far. I think labor studies helps us to understand why this happens, right? This is not some kind of a random thing. This is, there's a, there are patterns to this. For sure. And I think that if you're not growing up in an environment where you're getting a lot of that, it can be a bit confusing to be like, why are my professors going on strike? Why is my semester ending? Or why are people telling me to not cross a picket line and shop at this particular place? Developing that, that burgeoning sense of solidarity if one is sort of interested in seeing the labor organizing that's going on in other sectors or spaces, how does one organize their own workspace? Oh, okay. So if- I realize that this is a lot more than we're going to be able to get into in, in this period, but just sort of an introduction to what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, if people are working in a workplace that's not unionized and in the private sector in Canada, that's the overwhelming majority, although most public sector workplaces are unionized. The thing to do is don't be a lone wolf. You need to start learning what, you know, what are the issues that are upsetting you and your coworkers and start thoughtfully recognizing who sees these issues the way you do, with the idea being to try to pull together a core group of people who think that what needs to be done is to, to unionize and then to look at ways to identify other people who would be thinking this way, talking about what people are experiencing in the workplace and trying to have conversations to see whether more people can be persuaded that by acting collectively and unionizing, this would be a way of trying to address these problems in the workplace. And over time, if you can actually pull a group of like-minded people together to do that, of course, how many people you need would depend on the size of the workplace, right? In a really small workplace, like a little restaurant, it wouldn't mean that many. Then you can think about trying to do some research about what union you would like to connect with to help you do this in the workplace and to reach out. And there's a a process that's laid down in the law in Canada about how people form unions. And it's essentially workers sign union membership cards. And once you have a certain percentage of those workers who sign cards, you submit those cards to the labor board, which is a provincial body, administrative body, unless you work in the federal jurisdiction where there's a federal body. It will work a little bit differently depending on what province you're in. But in Manitoba here, once that happens, there'll be a vote of all the people who would be potentially covered by the union's collective agreement, the union's contract, about whether they want to, in fact, be unionized. But uh, this is something where even if the law says you need at least 40% of people to sign union membership cards, unions will generally want a lot more than that to actually sign cards before you submit the application to be what's called certified, to have the union officially recognized so that people can then start negotiating on behalf of the group around the wages and working conditions and rights that people are going to have. So that's the kind of basics of the process. But for people who are in, in the workplace confronting challenges, I think, again, the most important thing is to sort of get a sense of who in the workplace thinks there are problems, who sees them the way that you do, and who is most into the idea of uh, acting collectively to try to address them. Thank you for that. And even within that answer, you kind of expose how the process varies from province to province. And as a result of that, the rights that workers have kind of also varies. 
especially between unionized and non-unionized workplaces. And thinking about gig and platform economies, I kind of wonder about the increasing number of gig workers and the issue of them having to unionize to get things like pensions and benefits, especially when, you know, the nature of the job kind of limits social interactions and makes organizing hard. So how do you respond to things like that? Yeah, those are really important questions. And one of the the first issues is that if people are classified as independent contractors rather than classified under the law as employees, then they're not able to unionize in most provinces. This is the way that the law will be written. So yeah, that's a problem because if you are you know, a delivery driver and you are officially, according to your employer, an independent contractor, then that creates some, some challenges, right? I mean, you're not entitled to the very bare minimum of rights that the Employment Standards Code provides to people who are employees, but it also creates obstacles to unionizing. Now, this is not impossible. Like there are certainly situations where the employer says these people are independent contractors and the workers say, no, we're not. And they've successfully managed to unionize. So the most high profile recent example in Canada was in Toronto, where Fedora, food delivery drivers, both people working on bikes and on driving as well, were actually able to organize through Gig Workers United, which is affiliated to the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. They were actually successful in unionizing. Unfortunately, the company then decided to shut down operations. But yeah, it's, it's a big challenge where people, you know, sometimes misclassified where the company says that somebody's an independent contractor, but in fact, that's not an accurate description of their position, but that can be a thing that some firms will do to prevent people from unionizing and to relieve themselves of some of the responsibilities and commitments that come when people are hired as employees, like having to pay the minimum wage, guaranteeing vacation time and, and so on. And yeah, there are lots of challenges where people are really working alone or in very, very disconnected from other people, but there are creative solutions that have been and are being used to address that challenge. So certainly people forming WhatsApp groups, people connecting in other ways digitally and finding ways to meet up in person. So those couriers that I mentioned, the people from Fedora, there are all sorts of things that were done to actually connect people offline doing this work so that they could talk about their issues of common concern and, and the issue of unionizing. So it's challenging, but there are all sorts of ways where people, not just in Canada, but around the world are grappling with this. Yeah, I'm curious about how you also see some of these these dynamics around organizing and counter-organizing from those who are not so concerned with workers' well-being. How you see that playing with the pandemic? Because there's there's both a lot of narratives about workers being more organized and we have the whole great resignation stuff, but there's also quite a lot of precarity these days. And you know, a lot of people have been pushed out of jobs and Despite the very high profile unionization efforts, I've heard that at least in the States, this has like been a, a low so far for how many workplaces have actually filed for unionization. So yeah, I'm curious how you see in these strange times, some of these dynamics playing out. Right. Yeah. And one thing to start with is the situation in the U.S. and the situation in Canada are not the same. Mm-hmm. Adam King, who writes weekly column for the publication Passage and works as a researcher for the Canadian Labour Congress. Uh, I don't think he's yet written about this, but he certainly said to me when I was communicating with him about it, that the data in Canada suggests that there hasn't been a great resignation, you know, here, that the situation is different. I mean, workers in the States have been less protected than they have been in Canada through the pandemic, which isn't to say that things have been great in Canada, but they've just been a lot worse in the U.S. And also because the rate of unionization is so low in the U.S. that people staying and trying to make changes in their workplace, you know, is even less common than it is in Canada. So 
idea that if you just are in a bad situation that you leave and go elsewhere, that is probably even more the case in the, in the U.S. So it's just important to mention because we get so much of our ideas about what's going on through online media sources, which are mostly from the States. And so it can end up being deceptive about not understanding the situation here. I don't know about the data in terms of what's actually been happening with unionization in the States. There have been high profile, very interesting examples of workers unionizing and more recently going on strike in a number of significant private sector workplaces in the U.S. But it is always possible to be deceived by those cases into missing the broader patterns and trends of what's really going on. So in Canada... I haven't seen any really good research on this, so it's pretty anecdotal, but I certainly have seen evidence that there have been some situations where people have unionized in response to the challenges that they faced in the workplace because of the pandemic in a number of retail places, for example. So it may not be a lot of workers overall, but there have been some cases where people have responded to the difficulties that they've encountered that way. But overall, the the level of strikes has been extremely low both in Canada and the U.S., for understandable reasons. But I think the other thing that's happening is that some workers have been really put through such an incredibly difficult slog through the pandemic, you know, the worst being the situation for people in healthcare at all levels, but teachers and education support workers, lots of of retail workers as well. And so I think there's a lot of anger that's there and a lot of frustration in people, certainly in healthcare and often education, very tired. So what happens after the Omicron wave, if things settle down, that'll be very interesting to see, to see whether once the dust settles and the situation gets better in terms of the pandemic, whether people are going to be demanding a lot more change because of the feelings of what they've sacrificed, what they've endured through the pandemic. And, you know, words of thanks and congratulations and don't you work so hard and wasn't it noble what you did and so on that's probably not going to cut it for a lot of people the story is far from over i guess this is the way i would put it those are our main questions that we had going in do you have anything else that you would like to say about understanding oneself from a flavor perspective well i wanted to put out maybe a shout out for a recent book that i think is well worth reading called work won't love you back by sarah jaffe who's a u.s journalist And she, in the book and in lots of podcast interviews and other things that she's done online, she has talked about how we live in a time where there's a kind of an ethos of do what you love and the idea that if you do what you love, it's not really work. And what that does to workers when we embrace it, when we act that way, she says, work won't love us back. And in lots of cases, it leads to people you know, running themselves into the ground, becoming extremely, you know, drained, frustrated and hurt sometimes when they pour themselves into these kinds of jobs that they're in. And she does a really good job of looking at how it came to be this way and looking at the experiences of different groups of workers, both people doing kind of caring work, whether it's teaching or healthcare, that kind of work, social service work, or work in kind of creative fields and suggesting that workers should look at work in a really different way. So I highly recommend that. It's very readable as a book. And she's also interesting to listen to. So I think that's a good book for our times when it comes to the world of work. Yeah, I definitely second that recommendation. I lent it to a co-worker of ours. Um, Jaffe has a great podcast called The Labor that covers labor issues. I also want to shout out David's recent piece in Rare Patch, um, Recentry Mutual Aid and Worker Organizing. I'll mention another source people might be interested in. Rankandfile.ca is a good publication that doesn't publish a lot of material, but does publish some very useful stuff on issues connected to work and worker organizing in Canada in particular. 
we have talked a lot about some of the more perhaps dour aspects of this subject. Would you like to maybe speak to some of the, you know, what can make engaging and understanding work from this perspective, um, like a little bit more like helpful? And Oh, for sure. So we're in a society, we're stuck with it, right? <laughs> we are where we are. The question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to live our lives in this context? So I think it's always a good idea to understand the situation, right? Even if you're in a situation where at the moment in your workplace, you can't really make any changes that would really make a difference for you. I think it does really make a difference to understand where you're at so that you don't end up thinking that it's your fault. You know, for example, we often just blame ourselves when we find ourselves in situations that aren't maybe very good for us. So I think it's, I think, very eye-opening to understand how things got to be the way that they are, to understand that the world of work hasn't always been the way that it is, and that means it doesn't necessarily have to always be this way it is now. I mean, we know it's not going to stay the same, could get better, could get worse, but I think having an understanding of those things is really helpful, and I find it really interesting. And it, I think, can change the way we think about our own choices and how we relate to other people and think about what other people are experiencing and how they respond to the situations they find themselves in. So I think it's really helpful for navigating life and making the best of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And once we recognize that things have not always been this way and that there's a long history of ordinary people fighting for positive change in the workplace, it maybe gives us a different sense of what might be possible in the future in terms of things that people can do to act collectively to make work and society better for the majority of people. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Youth Employment Services Manitoba Job Pod. This episode was hosted by Hafiz Jato and me, Alex Neufeld. I also edited the podcast. Our music is by Nathan Crow. If you are between the ages of 16 and 29 in Manitoba, Youth Employment Services offers free employment help. You can register on our website, esmb.ca, or email reception at esmb.ca, or call 204-987-8661. Thanks again for listening, and good luck out there in the world of work.